Good morning. It's great to see you. It's humbling to see you. And uh, we're excited about what God is doing in and among our midst. Um, a unique guest with us this morning, about 1981, I'm going to guess, 81, 82. I'm at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm a young seminarian. I don't know anything. I know less about anything. And uh, they had these chapel speakers that would come in, and then they would have what's called a brown bag luncheon. So you could take your little sack lunch and uh, hear more from the speaker. And uh, the 1977 graduate 76 THM graduate, uh, so this is 81 or 82 perhaps the latest, uh, comes in and he's, uh, he's jet black haired, very intentional, very determined, very, you know, a good Bible teacher in chapel. So I thought, I want to go hear what this guy says. And he gave a brown bag luncheon called uh, something, it was back before computers, so it was typed poorly on a piece of paper and to the effect of uh, suggestions for young pastors. And I sat there and took copious notes, and I had that physical piece of paper in my file folder for years. And Mike Powell had gone to Pocatello, Idaho. And if you know anything about Idaho, that's Mormon country. And he went up there before there were evangelical, fundamental, Bible-believing churches that were making a difference. And God used Mike and his wife to uh, create an incredible ministry in Idaho. And he's somewhat of a legend in that part of his ministry there. But Mike, stand up, and I just want to have them greet you and thank you for being here this morning. So... Um, Quite a legacy in ministry. And Bill and Terry Howard, how many of you know Bill and Terry Howard in this room? A lot of you know Bill and Terry Howard have been here 12, 14 years. What have you guys been here? 22 years? No. Say it isn't so. Bill's much younger than me, uh, but we both went to Dallas Seminary at different times. Uh, I got a better degree than him. But um, Bill is a uh, wizard smart uh, Bible teacher, theologian, and shares Christ on the backstroke and has shared Christ with many, many people uh, at the foundation of this area. And in some respects, I think in glory, we're going to see how God used Bill and Terry in ways that we don't understand right now in the horizontal. But it's a delight to have them with us as well. Open your Bible to Second Peter chapter 1. And as you do that, I want you to, I want you to think with me about a question every one of us in this room has wrestled with. Is it's, it's both a tandem question about how do we know we're saved, but I want to compartmentalize it in two segments. When we look at people who live differently than us and we go, they're not really saved. Versus when we look at our own life and evaluate how we are saved. Just exchanged an email with a friend not long ago about eternal security, insurance, and salvation. And this dovetails. How many of us, when we came to Christ, wondered, what have we done? How do, what, are we sure we're saved? I, I did for three years. For three years. Do I really know what I did? How do I feel about it? Some people had this dramatic experience. Others didn't. I mean, it was, and, and so we're navigating this. What happens when we become sophisticated? And before long, we think we know what it means. We tend to fall into one of two camps, generally speaking. We set up a system of do's and don'ts. Read your Bible, pray, go to church, be involved with Bible study, hang around with Christian friends, grow, mature, you know, then you're going to be a Christian. And then the others of us fall in this category of, well, I'm saved and grace is grace and I can kind of do what I want. Let me make it simple. 
licentiousness or legalism. Can I live however I want no matter what, or do I have to follow a set of do's and don'ts to know that I'm clearly saved? And one of the conundrums, and I, I've, I've been guilty of this as part of a Bible teaching ministry for years, is how do we help people, careful here, measure that I'm growing in Christ? How do we measure that? It, it's kind of a weird question, but I think all of us wonder it. How do I know I'm growing? How do I know I'm maturing? How do I know I'm becoming more like Christ? Because we can fall in those camps. Where it becomes insidious is when the person who lives licentiously says, it doesn't matter. I can always pull out 1 John 1, 9, my get out of jail free card. If I confess my sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us my sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Or we can play the legalist side of it, the legalism, and say, well, if you're not doing this, 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 you can't be a Christian. I'm driving in Dallas, Texas years ago. I hear a nationally known author being interviewed, asked the question, if a person lives a specific sinful lifestyle, is he or she saved? The author said, no. And I kind of recoil at that. I get what they're saying because if you're not following some general principles, how do you know for sure this person is a Christian? On the other hand, people that live licentiously say, well, I'm forgiven and, and grace is grace and God's made me this way and I can do whatever I want and you're hateful and intolerant and they live licentiously. Both are egregiously in error. The solution is not a balance. That's always, you know, we think about balances aren't a solution. Clarity, what Scripture teaches, is a solution. What does the Scripture say? How do we know uh, we're growing? Um, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus uses this wonderful setup, teaching scribes and Pharisees as well as his followers. And he does this thing five times. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And whenever I hear someone on the legalistic side say, uh, if you don't do these things, if you live that way, you can't be a Christian. You're not a Christian. I want to be very careful when I hear that. And Je I'm just going to give you one of the five. Jesus says, you've heard it said, this is Matthew 5, 27. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now he quotes Exodus uh, chapter 20, verse 14. It's the seventh of 10 commandments there. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. In other words, everybody knew that. You've heard it said, he continues, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Did Jesus make the law easier or worse? He made it heavier. If you commit adultery, of course, that's obvious. The seventh commandment said, don't commit adultery. Jesus turns up the burner. If you look at her, in my notes in my Bible, I go, MJE, you're toast. If you look at her with adultery in your heart, you may as well committed. The licentiousness person says, well, then I may as well sleep around. The legalist says, well, then I've got to not look. I've got to be segregated. I've got to, you know, go join a monastery or whatever. I mean, you know, we have these overcompensations. The balance is not the issue. It's clarity. What is he saying? That whole section of Matthew is really addressing how is one righteous? 
You can't be righteous by doing the right things, and you can't be righteous by living a sinful lifestyle. Righteousness is only found in Christ. Well, back to 2 Peter, what he's going to give us in this section is a remarkable list, and I'm going to call them characteristics. We're going to look at eight characteristics, a high view of these things. But let's remind us of a couple of things before we jump into the text. I'm going to argue salvation is point in time, sanctification is process. Say it with me. Salvation is point in time, sanctification is process. One more time. Salvation is point in time, sanctification, process. Now, it's not hard and fast in the sense that uh, some of you might have a Bible where you wrote at a Christian camp or a conference or your mom or dad led you to Christ by the bedside. Great. You got a date and time. That was a point in time. Not everyone in this room can point to a point in time, but there, there were series of events. And you say, you know, somewhere in that period of time, it made sense. It's still a point in time. Point in time, salvation, process salvation, sanctification. So sanctification is that goal of becoming more like Jesus Christ. Uh, Louis Burkhoff uh, defines sanctification as a work of God in which the believer cooperates. A work of God in which the believer cooperates. I like that about 90%. And I've said this many times before, I don't think we can hurry up our sanctification. I do think we can thwart it. Does that sort of make sense? I, I, I can live in sin, I can live in apathy, I can live in legalism, and I can discourage my own spiritual growth by any number of things. I just don't know that we can hurry it up. We can certainly agree with God, follow God's word, and be more in a posture of growth and sanctification, but it takes time. Any of us who've raised children, you, you know, before they turn over, they can't crawl. Once they crawl, then they got to pull up. Once they pull up, they got to figure out how to get back down. Once they get up and down, they got to figure out how to crawl. You know, it, it, so there's no, certainly some children advance faster than others, some slower than others. Uh, generally speaking, it's a process of sanctification, it's a process of growth. I believe that's a fair way of thinking of spiritual growth. When you walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, came to Christ in your college room dorm, a friend of you, a friend of yours shared a Bible across a cup of coffee, a businessman shared with you, a medical uh, peer shared, whatever you came to Christ, there was something that probably happened then and there that was pretty interesting. But then you start to grow, you start to see things, and that's all normal. One of the challenges of measuring spirituality is we commingle these things. We commingle our salvation and our sanctification. Salvation is a point in. Sanctification is a process. And we're going to have ups and downs. Look at any character in Scripture. They had ups and downs. Disciples had ups and downs. Peter had ups and downs. Humans have ups and downs. So sanctification is a process. The time of our salvation versus the process of sanctification. Now, Let's think about measuring, and I'm going to use that word in quotations, and I want you to read the passage with me aloud, if you kindly would. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. Now, for this very reason also, applying... Okay, we're going to start over. We're going to start over. I, I have this pet peeve uh, that when we read the Scripture, we're to read it well. We're to read it well. 
and I want you to read it well with me. It's the living word of God. Let's not mutter. Okay? Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Now, uh, thank you so much to our renderings. The word your it should be in italic. Just a little sidebar commercial. I had this question last couple of weeks about what translation I use. I use the New American Standard Translation. It's, it's technically called the 95 update. doesn't matter. Uh, NASB is, is the one. I encourage you to get a Bible, a real Bible. I'm not mad at you if you use technology, but I'm going to shame you a little bit. I'm kidding. Uh, a real Bible. Learn to take some notes. Learn to draw in it. As I've said many times, maybe you haven't read it all, but you can color in it. So uh, get a real Bible. I still believe neuro plasticity, something happens when you're writing and working in a real pen and paper thing. Take a note or two once in a while. If you're bored, write a shopping list. It won't hurt my feelings. The word your in this rendering is in italics, meaning it's a suppleted word. It's not in the original. English versions are always trying to make it so that the English ear can understand. We've talked a lot about translation, transliteration, communication. It's impossible to do a word-for-word -word translation in any language. Now, had we dropped the word your, it would have made perfect sense to you. If I was to read, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your face supply moral excellence, in moral excellence knowledge, and in knowledge self-control. You see what I'm saying? So the word your is suppleted. It's a word that's not in the original. The New American Standard Bible is the only translation on the market that will always put a suppleted word in italics, telling you, the reader, this wasn't in the original Greek or Hebrew. It's given to you to make it smoother to the English ear. I submit if you adopt studying the NASB over time, you won't need that italics. And you'll see, oh, I can read this, but here's the deal. NASB and King James are written for a 12th grade educated person. NIV, 7th grade. It's a marketing strategy. It's about selling English Bibles. It's not right or wrong. It's a marketing strategy. You're educated people. You all have a 12th grade mind or better. So you can handle a little bit of a wooden text. And last thing I'll say about this is, this is the word of God. I want to get as clear and close as I can to what the writer wrote. And sometimes the interpretational translations that we find in other renderings to me, it, it takes more explanation than what I'm doing now. And I, don't, I won't do this a lot, but from time to time, I'll remind you of why I'm using this. Well, these eight characteristics of sound living are built on sound doctrine. Um, the last thing I'll say is when you do see in chapter uh, 1, verses 5 to 15, when the word you or your is not in italics, it's in a second person plural. Here in the South is y'all. All y'all. Why that's important as a grammar note is Peter is now talking to the audience. Peter's not just going doctrinaire, he's talking to you and me. He's giving us instruction. And by the way, this isn't just the Apostle Peter who's writing words for us to follow a letter or a document. This is the word of God. 
through his servant, Peter, to you and me. As Hendricks off said, this is not what God would say if he was here. This is what God is saying because he is here, which is why we want to read it well when we read it. God's divine power and divine nature, we looked at last week, must be understood in daily practice. God's divine power and divine nature, that was the whole message last Sunday, must be then applied in practical Christian living. If it's just a theological idea that we have somehow this nature of God and this power of God, yawn. We're not becoming little gods. We're not superhumans. We're not you know, super uh, Marvel or DC characters. We're human beings, but we have access to supernatural power and a divine nature in Christ. We're not becoming little gods. But this is Peter's argument. And I find it fascinating that when people study Peter, they go, he wasn't as, as smart a theologian as Paul. Au contraire. His second letter, both letters are brilliant. But he moves very quickly from doctrine, sound doctrine, to sound living in the application of that. Now, one last thing before we jump in the text. How many of you play an instrument of some kind, voice, whatever? Raise real high, real high. I'm going to say 30% of you. Um, some of you in this room are professionals. Some used to be professional. Some dabble at it. Uh, when you watch these men and women we have up here uh, leading us in worship, I marvel because I, you know, I played clarinet for one year in third grade, and they asked me not to play it for the next year. <clears throat> um, I could play, oh, when the saints go marching in, and I hung up the clarinet. Um, so that's all I know about music. A musician who has played for many, many years can walk up and rehearse in like one minute and play it. The difference between that musician and someone who works at it every day is what? A lot different. You can hack your way around if you've played piano since third grade. But if you're playing every day or five days a week or you're taking a class or going to some, you know, if you're, if you're a bass player and there's this extraordinary bass friend of yours, so, hey, man, would you give me a couple of hours? They're going to teach you some things that you're, right, that you're not going to know. If you played piano forever and you hit, see this keyboard person that's like otherworldly, hey, man, would you give me a few hours to help me? Give me you know, you're going to right. Musicians, take your head, even if I'm sort of half crazy, right, right. you can learn. Why am I giving that illustration? Christian maturity is the same way. We can live ensconced in, I read that, I did BSF, I did precip, I did community Bible study, I was in a community group once, and I grew, and I've got this, I can sort of brush up real quick and go to work. Is it any different? And I will ask you, is it more important? Sanctification is a process. So when Peter gives us this list, think about these characteristics as process, not point-in-time product, because none of us are ever going to have all of them instantaneously. The uh, J.W.C. Wand, a very old arcane commentator, said, the divine nature must be daily exercised in moral living. The divine nature must be daily exercised. Again, I like about 90% of what he's saying because you feel the tension. But you've got to have this divine nature and divine power to live a Christian life. It's an otherworldly life. This is not being a smarter sinner or a better human or a more disciplined sinner or a more clever sinner. 
This is the divine nature and the divine power of God infused in the believer by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And as we agree with him, we follow him, we lean into his word, his spirit, his people, we are maturing. And that's where this text is going to go. All right, three observations. We'll look at the list. First of all, be diligent, verse 5. For this very reason also applying diligence. The word means to be fast or speed or have quickness towards something. Luke chapter 139. Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah. Romans 12.1. Not lagging behind in diligence but fervent in spirit. So the emphasis Paul's, uh, Peter's giving us is, man, diligence is the primary the verbal effort of this first sentence. I want you to get after it, all right? Second thing, applying all. This means to bring it to bear. Let's gather it up and apply this diligence. And thirdly, he's going to speak about this knowledge base, supplying it. So we have to have applying diligence in our faith all wrapped together. Some of your translations have a little different rendering, but you'll see the same sense of this. Now, if you're going to address these eight characteristics, I want you to come at it with game on. If you've coached a team or you've played a sport, you've probably either yelled at your players or heard your coach say, get a move on! Get your head back in the game! Let's run! Because what happens? Third quarter or second half of the soccer, you get tired, you're hot, you're sweaty, you're behind. When uh, my second daughter, Jessie, was a fabulous soccer player for 14 seasons, they were extraordinary. And she'd get upset and get mad and get hot and get sweaty. And I could walk the sidelines and go, Jessie, get your head in the game. She'd get mad. You know, I've got three daughters and one son, so I can talk about girls. Girls are different. Girls are different. She gets her feelings hurt on the field. Some girl keeps kicking her or tripping her. I go, Jesse, don't get even. Go make a goal. Get your head in the game, Jesse. So funny because she would often tell the story. She'd say, above all the noise and all the coach and everything, I could always hear my father. I could always hear my dad. That's one of those slow echo parenting things. Do you always hear your father? Get your head in the game, Jess. That's the emphasis of this passage. It works both ways. Parenting four children's four children is the most humbling, uh, joyful, challenging, delightful, maddening thing. I mean, all you parents and grandparents, amen. Uh, you young parents, we love you so much. It's so easy. Your precious little angel's never going to give you any trouble. Cough up a hairball. Um, so we had chores. Now, the chores I had to do as a kid compared to my kid, you know, my kid's chores were, you know, a three-minute chore. My chore was mowing for 29 hours, right, right? <laughs> Uphill both ways in the heat, right? That's, that's how. We, so anyway, we had a garbage night, and the kids rotated the garbage night. Now, six people in a house, we generated a lot of trash. If you did just a fairly good pace, you could get those garbage cans done in about four minutes. Take liner out, put a new liner in, put them all together, put it in the thing, wheel it to the curb, boom, maybe five. One child who will remain unnamed. You may as well have been putting daggers in that child to tell them it was their night to do garbage. First of all, they'd argue, so we had a chart on the refrigerator. But I traded with so-and-so last week. I don't care, the chart's the law in the kitchen. It's your night. 
Now, Cindy was a better parent, always has been, always will be. And when that child would come, this is your garbage night, honey. That's a mom. Get the garbage done. That's dad, right? So we had, this, is, this is our family. So the kid's watching TV after dinner. It's your garbage night. It's your garbage night. Big fight, big fight, big fight. The fight lasts longer than emptying the garbage. So then the child goes, pulls the garbage cans out, leaves the garbage can in the middle of the room, doesn't put a liner in, sort of halfway does it all, gets lost in the process. Have you done the garbage yet? You got to get the garbage out before you go to bed. I mean, it's a fight, fight, fight. You could have done this 10 times. And then when they've done it, they do it, and they come in, all the garbage cans are left out without liners in. Now we got another fight. Anybody have a child like that besides me? Get with it. Applying all diligence in your faith. In your faith. And again, that slow parenting echo that God in his great sense of humor and patience does with Michael is when I'm railing at my kid, would you get this done? You could have done it in three minutes. You're making this a fight for an hour tonight. You're making it, and, and then what do you do as a parent? You just do it for them because you get tired of the fight. And then I hear that slow echo going, Michael, you're just like that. You don't run to obey me. You make excuses. You put it off. You delay when it takes this much time. That's why parenting, as my friend Dennis Rainey says, is the last chance God gives you to grow up. Because what you're trying to teach and instill on your kids is probably a reflection of your own heart, deficiencies, some things we do right. It's not all bad news. Well, look at these characteristics, verses 5, the second part, and onward. Let's start out with faith. Now, just again, some of you are, are, are serious Bible students, and you may know this already. Some look at this as a list of eight, and some look at it as a list of seven. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything theologically. They look at faith as the primary overarching general term, and then this is a subset under it. I don't think that's right or wrong. Or wrong. I'm going to prefer to look at them as eight characteristics. Listen to what D. Edmund Hebert writes. The Christian experience is not an initial spasm followed by chronic inertia. I like that. It's not this spasm that then is followed by inertia. Spiritual growth in the Christian life calls for strenuous involvement on the part of the believer. We're not creating a set of legalistic do's and don'ts to measure our spirituality. Does that make sense? This is so important because I think, I think you're sown one way or the other. You're sown toward a legalistic do-right person or you're sown toward, it really doesn't matter and I can just do what I want. That's perhaps an overgeneralization, but I think we're kind of wired one way or the other. To be a legalist may seem good on the surface. It's just as insidious because I'm measuring myself by some standard I've set and even worse, I'm laying that on other people as a trip. They couldn't be a Christian. The way they live, there's no way they could be a Christian. Oh, everybody's a Christian. It doesn't matter. I mean, they, they walk the out, pray the prayer. It doesn't matter if they're living like that. They're fine. They're both wrong. You with me? It's not a balance. Let's get some clarity on it. The first thing is faith. Faith in the, is the way that we pursue these characteristics. Again, Hebrew says, this is the seedbed out of which Christian 
character grows. I like that. It's the seedbed out of which Christian character grows. The author of Hebrews in verse 6 of chapter 11 says the same phrase. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. I don't know about you, but that verse keeps me awake at night. It literally, if I'm reading the chapter Hebrews, it's impossible to please God. I go, I'm toast again. Faith isn't just stupidity and walking off a stage thinking God's going to protect me if I step on the highway. Faith is what? Confident assurance of things hoped for with the conviction of things not yet seen. I'm believing in his word. I'm believing in his way. I'm believing in truth, not just some subjective, oh, I think God wants me to go do X, is how we misapply this. So we come to Christ by faith. Think of it this way, salvation versus sanctification. Think about being saved versus living saved. Is that too cheeky? Being saved versus living saved. I believe many people truly walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, came to faith in Christ in a legitimate, bona fide way. They have a benchmark, but they aren't living as a saved person. Hard to measure, so let's look at the characteristics that would be reflective of a person who is growing in Christ. It begins with faith. Secondly, in your faith, moral excellence. That's such a generic piece of uh, uh, language to you and me as English readers, it really has the idea of uncommon character, a person with uncommon character. Paul uses the same phrase in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brother, whatever, brother, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, that's the word, in anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Uncommon character. It's excellent. It stands above. A helpful way for me to think about moral excellence, think about a man or woman you know who you would call as like, this is really a godly person. When I think of a Christian that, not perfect, but I mean, they're, you know, my category, it's all women who are over 75 and widowed. Those are the people that I look at as godly people because they've been married an awful long time. They've buried a spouse. They've got kids and grandkids who, candidly, for the most part, are not involved in their life. And yet they love Christ, and they're doing ministry. And, I mean, they humble me when I talk to these widows. I have two that are 91. They're in better health than me. And when I call them on the phone to cheer them up, you know what happens? They're encouraging me. They're godly women. They're not bitter. They don't complain. Now, I ask questions, and I'm sort of their, one of their many children. I'm like one of their adopted sons. And I can get under sometimes the tent and say, well, how are you really feeling? And it's not that they're complaining, but they'll share some things about being 91. And we'll laugh about it together. It's not like whining. And so whenever I call, it's like, oh, I'm so glad you called. I think God uses me to encourage them. But far more importantly, these... So I think of these women as godly. Now, so here's the question. When you think of a person in faith that has moral excellence, how do you bring that quotient into your own life? Are you a man or woman who is a woman or a man of uncommon character? Are you by faith 
becoming, growing more like that. The list continues. But again, practical knowledge, this is a big part of 2 Peter, must result in, in application, excuse me, doctrine and foundations must result in application. It's not just more knowledge. Barnett writes, where moral and religious values are concerned, a good man thinks more clearly and discriminatingly than a licentious man. The will to do God's will enables a man to follow whether or not the teaching is from God. The will to do God's will enables a man to know whether the teaching is from God. So this is part of our moral excellence. It continues in knowledge, self-control. So now we're looking at restraining our emotions. There has been a uh, shift, and I know some of you are in the counseling realm, and I'm, I'm not. Uh, Cindy and I have been through counseling in our 10th year of marriage. We went for about nine months, and it was so helpful. I am not anti-counseling. But I have seen a tectonic shift in therapy the last decade that is very alarming to me, where feelings now are more important than truth. We used to say feeling, your feelings are valid. Now we say your feelings are what you need to follow and lean on and lean into and understand. And I, I get where that comes from because we're not trying to repress if you were hurt and you were a victim and you were abused. And I mean, I'm not trying to swab over that injury. But digging further into emotional archaeology does not give me the true standard to change the way I think and feel about something that happened to me. That's why therapy can go on for years sometimes. Larry Crabb was one of the first to come out and say, we've been doing it wrong a long time. Emotional archaeology is not the cure to your problem. Worshiping insight is not the cure to your problem because you can always turn over more rocks and find out things that happened to you and blame, you know, I've said this many, many times, maturity is when you stop blaming your past, you own your present, and you plan your future. You stop blaming your past, you own your present, and you plan your future. That's a grown-up in any area of life. Job, marriage, family, divorce, recovery, singleness, remarriage. Stop blaming your past, own your present, plan your future. You could put that on a card. You could put it on a what-would-Jesus-do band. Stop blaming your past, own your present, plan your future. That's just common sense. In knowledge... Now he moves to self-control. Growing and the maturing believer understands knowledge and self-control. And it, was it, I looked it up online. I couldn't find it this week. Y'all remember that? I think it was salty. And it was self-control is just controlling myself. It's listening to my heart and doing what, Anybody remember this song besides me? Self-control. It was the Fruit of the Spirit album. Back when they were LPs were not cool, they were all we had. Uh, but self-control is just controlling myself. I don't like the theology. Listening to my heart and doing what is smart. Okay, it rhymes. Uh, self-control is just controlling myself. Pretty good. Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to drive on the freeway and not look at that man or woman several times or oogle uh, some young person or what money, sex, and power umbrellas, why is it so difficult to say, that's not for me? I can't do that. I turn the page. It doesn't fulfill anyway. 
because I need the spiritual control. In self-control, perseverance. This is an inner strength of endurance that is a result of patience. I hate this. An inner strength of endurance as a result of patience. You know the old axiom, never pray for patience. Because you'll be stuck in the waiting room forever. Don't ever ask God to teach you patience. That's, that's a joke. You follow me? Okay. I'm not sure you're following me. Um, <laughs> bearing up under a heavy load. I spend about 10% of my time talking to people with chronic diseases and chronic pain. Just this week, a person I don't know, a friend of a friend said, would you talk to my older sister? She's about to have another back surgery. And I spent an hour on the phone with this woman. And um, I always qualify it with, I'm um, the kind of doctor that can't help anybody. Please understand that. This is just experience and dealing with this since 2000. And I've learned a lot. And I've learned some things that, it's like my little toolkit I give people. First, I find out where they are. You don't dump the truck, and you give them some advice. In less than an hour conversation, she says, this is the most help I've ever gotten from anyone on how to deal with back pain. And I'm going, well, understand the medical community. Surgeons cut. Uh, primary care internal medicine physicians are inundated with patients and, and insurance and the Affordable Care Act has clobbered them in new ways. Pain management doctors have a bad rap, sometimes deserved, sometimes not deserved. Everybody's stovepiped. You have to be your own advocate. And you got to treat these people nice. And the Michael Easley uh, Affordable Health Care Program is $14 and it's two dozen Krispy Kreme donuts when you walk in the door. I'm not kidding. When I go see the neurology team, when I go see, uh, and now some doctors I don't do this because I know they don't want the donuts, but in general terms, the front reception folks, they love me coming in. It's the donut man. I get up, I shave, I shower, I get dressed, I look like a decent human being, I go in there, I'm nice, I ask their names. When they do my BP, I ask how their family is. I'm talking to all of them. How are you today? How are you today? You know what your health care does? It goes from here to here. I'm the one patient they're going to see today that wants to get better. And I give her all kinds of hints and tips and all this kind of stuff. And I explained to her, you're under a heavy load, and endurance is part of the drill. I'm sorry. The medical community is really trying hard, but they're under a heavy load, and it's not their fault. They didn't get into medicine for this. Don't be mad at these people. They're the people that can help you, for goodness sakes. Love on them. Encourage them. Take them some Christmas cookies. Be nice to your physical therapist. You'll be amazed how your world will change. Because they're people too. My mantra when I talk to people is just do the next thing. Those of you who know me have heard me say this over until you're sick of it. Just do the next thing. Getting out of bed for me is a challenge. Get into the hot shower. I don't like hot showers, but it's the only thing that starts to turn the noise down. By the time I got the hot shower and I'm shaving in front of the mirror and I've started some medication, I feel a little bit better. And by the time I've done all those things and sit in my chair with my cup of coffee and my third or fourth big glass of water, I start to go, okay, I can do this. Even this morning at 3.45 when I got up. Every morning it's the same drill endurance. Why do you think you're any different? We all got our stuff. Doesn't matter if you got a bad back or cancer or you're just ornery. We got our stuff. Will you press on? Will you do the next thing? Perseverance. I love how it tandems. Self-control and perseverance. 
Peter doesn't miss a note. In perseverance, godliness. Persevering believers are motivated by godliness. Again, it's a strange word to say, oh, you know, so-and-so, they're a godly man. I don't like that adjective to be attached to my name, do you? They're a godly person. It sounds like, no, I'm not. You don't really know me. Um, The word here is the idea of a description, a fitting person that endures under a heavy load. Um, It's sometimes attributed to the Puritans. It's, It's one of these phrases, no one really knows the attribution. It's not how well you're doing, it's how you're doing when you're not doing well. You ever heard that? It's not how well you're doing, it's how you're doing when you're not doing well. Because when you're not doing well, we see your character. When I'm not doing well, you see who I really am. When a person is really hurting emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially, when they're ornery. Uh, I learned many years ago from a Christian counselor when I was on staff at another church, and people would be all up in our face and mad at the church and mad at the pastors, and they want to take it out on you, and all of a sudden you get defensive. and That, that doesn't help anybody. And this counselor said to me, Michael, they're hurting people. Look at them as hurting, wound, and that was a game changer for me. They're hurt. They're taking it out on the counselor. They're taking it out on the doctor. They're taking it out on the pastor. They're taking it out on the mom or the dad or the grandma or their husband or wife. They're hurting. And just reframing that, you know, my husband, my wife's hurt. My daughter, my son's hurt. And, you know, children are the ones who just wear us out because when they're hurt, you want to just dope slap them. It never occur to you when your children are whining and kvetching and being difficult to you is because you're the one safe place on the planet as a mom or a dad. They're hurting. That's godliness. Seventh and brotherly kindness. The logical connection, theological and progression to all these is Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. First Peter one twenty two, a sincere love of the brethren. Hebrews 13.1, let the love of the brethren continue. And finally, in brotherly kindness, love. We started with faith, we end with love. It is the word agape. Uh, we overwork the word agape. C.S. Lewis, for all his brilliance, when he wrote the book on love, I think he overstated the case. We cannot compartmentalize those words quite as technically as some people do. Agape intrinsically means sacrificial love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ of the church, and what? And, come on, you know this, gave himself up for her. You're going to love your wife like Christ of the church? You're going to give yourself up for her. In the same way also, women. I, I think we, so, we make this so difficult. The key to marriage is to outlove each other. The key to marriage is to love your ornery husband the key to marriage is to love your complicated wife. I tell people all the time, I have a new wife every six weeks. <laughs> I cannot figure out the woman no matter, I mean, 39 years of marriage, whatever, I still can't figure her out. I have I've given up. I get a new wife every six weeks. Like, okay, new wife. It's I live with her in an underst- we looked at this last semester, an understanding way. He didn't say understand her, he said an understanding way. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I can't understand her. You said this the other day. I've changed my mind. All okay, you know, doesn't work. Understanding way. And I will tell you, she's not here. I'd say that she's in the room. Cindy is a far, 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 far better person at putting my needs before hers. Always has been. 
and that both motivates me by guilt, shame, and goodness. To say, well, what am I going to do for her? And there's been some, you know, I've got a couple successes in a few years of marriage. There's a couple of, yeah, that was a good one, you know. Years ago, I got her a really, really, really nice gift, and uh, my older, one of my second daughter, Jesse, helped me pick it out. I was so glad I took her because I had picked out A and just no way, Dad, this is the one you want. Okay, so we get it, and uh, and unbeknownst to me, Jesse says, "Mom, Dad got you something. Just accept it. Don't talk about how much it cost, and don't you dare return it. Just accept it, Mom." Boy, she paved the way for me, you know. And so it was like, oh, you got me this real expensive thing. I like it. Okay, you know. And I'm not saying it has to be expensive. The point is. It's something she'd never do for herself. That's love. Love is putting somebody else in front of you. Think of our current culture. Is it about putting people in front of themselves? It's completely the opposite. This is the reason we're so bonkers right now. It's all about me. It's all about I, my rights, my preferences, my choices, my life, my income, my insurance, my, 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 my. Well, what if it's about others? What if it's about people that are hurting? What if I put my kids in front of some of my wants and needs? What if I put Cindy in front of my wants and needs? What if you put fill in the blank in front of some of your wants and needs? A remarkable spiritual thing happens. If you love someone else sacrificially, your need quotient goes way down. Your self quotient goes way down. And you know it truly is more blessed to give than to receive. If you don't know that, it's because you've never understood giving. And Cindy and I love to give money away. We love to bless other people. We love to bless other ministries. I'm so grateful God gave me a wife like that. If you're that way as a couple, you're rare. Because usually one's a saver and one's a spender, and they don't get along when it comes to giving. They have a fight about that. But if you're able to give it away, it's like, this is a blast. I am so happy to give this away. This is a joy. Sacrificial love. God's divine power and nature must be understood in daily practice in Christian living. All right, this is a real simple conclusion. I'm just going to review these. I'm just going to review these. I want you to, one or two of these is going to come, and as Jason and the team comes to lead us in in our concluding worship, uh, where are you lagging behind? Maybe you're not. Is there an area? And that's something I want you to pray about. Am I stuck with the, am I saved or am I growing? Can you resolve that, that you've put your trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation and that now it's a growth process? Don't live in fear of if you're saved. If you haven't come to Christ, we want you to. But if you put your trust in Christ and Christ alone and you're apathetic or you're tired or you're worn out or you're disconnected, that's okay. Sanctification is a process. Thirdly, your character speaks of Christ. Are you and I of good moral character? Fourth, do you know why you believe in what you believe? Do you know that you know that you know that you know that you know? Because without the bedrock of sound doctrine, your practical application is always going to be in question. Can you control yourself? That may be the one you needed to hear today. Can you walk out of here and exercise some self-control with the power of God's Spirit, divine nature and divine, helping you? Jesus, I don't have any self-control in this issue. I need self-control. Can you endure under a heavy load? And do you have a love for the brethren? 
hate to admit it, but sometimes it's harder to love the brethren than the non-brethren, isn't it? We're commanded to love the brethren. Father, we do thank you for your word that is true, that's reliable, that you spoke it and it's relevant today as it was the time Peter scratched it on parchment. Help us to be the kind of men and women who live the divine nature and divine power in a practically applicable way day to day. In Jesus' name, amen.